I'm Sarah Worthington. I'm the LSE's Pro-Director for Research and External Relations. And it gives me great pleasure to launch this series, Thinking Like a Social Scientist, and to introduce my colleague, Professor Ron Anderson, who has generously agreed to give the first lecture in this series. I want to say something, first of all, about the series. With my pro-director's hat on, I have to spend a reasonable amount of time thinking about what makes the LSE distinctive. You know, what is its unique selling point? And I have quite a lot of ideas about what makes the LSE distinctive, but one of them must surely be that we are one of the best social science institutions in the world. And we're certainly the best specialist social science institution in the world. So you would think that we would be able to say that you couldn't emerge from the LSE without having some basic understanding of the tools that social scientists use across the various disciplines. It would be nice, I think, to say of every LSE graduate, and it would probably also be nice to say of every one of my academic colleagues, we're at least conversational in the tools of the social sciences. Now, if we're honest, I know we can't say that. I count myself as an example, as a lawyer, as someone who isn't well-versed in the tools across the disciplines in the social sciences. So this series of lectures was a pretty trivial start to trying to remedy that situation. Uh, I thought, and I got a lot of support from friends and colleagues, that if we ran a series of one-hour lectures on thinking like a social scientist, where some of the top LSE academics tried to explain in relatively simple terms how their discipline worked, then at the end of a term we might all say we were a bit, little bit better informed than we had been ten weeks ago. So this is a series of nine lectures with that as its objective, just to teach us a little bit more about uh, the workings of the people in the institution to which we all belong. I hope it works. Um, it's quite nice to have this size audience at lunchtime because I have to say the only complaint I've had so far about this series is that people have conflicts, people have other commitments and can't attend at this time. We're fortunate, that being the case, that all these lectures will appear as podcasts on the LSE website. So for those who can't attend, they can have access, but not the face-to-face -face contact, and uh, I guess a more permanent record of what's been said. Now, turning to Ron Anderson. I count Ron as both a friend and a colleague. He's uh, a professor in the finance department, head of finance, uh, co-director of the Financial Markets Group, which is one of our very good research centres, and has a reputation, I think, for um, theory in financial economics. I think we all find, well, maybe I only speak for myself, I think some of us find finance a little intimidating, and I'm hoping that Ron can you know, bring it down to the level where a lawyer can understand. Although, on the other hand, I understand from his finance and his economics colleagues that if he doesn't have some equations in all of this, he'll lose credibility. So I hand over to Ron to explain how uh, 
people in finance work and how they think and what sorts of problems they work on, what tools they use. And I hope you all enjoy it. But Ron, thank you for offering to give this first lecture. Thanks very much, Sarah. That's very kind. Uh, it, it is indeed an honor to uh, be invited to uh, address this uh, in the f first in the series of lectures. I think it's an excellent uh, uh, initiative. So I was very supportive when Sarah brought it up. Uh, and I'm looking forward to attending um, the uh, lectures that are going to follow. So I'll learn some more about what's been going on in, in some of the other disciplines. Um, I think finance is a legitimate social science discipline. You can't call it one of the, the pillars of the social sciences. It's, it's, it, it's emerged as an independent discipline, I think, relatively recently, and it certainly builds on the sister disciplines. The way we do it here at LSE, certainly uh, you can think of finance as an offshoot, rather clearly, of economics. And Danny Kwa is here to uh, keep me on the straight and narrow. Um, and any questions about uh, uh, things that are unexplained will undoubtedly be explained by Danny next week in his, his lecture about economics. Um, it is uh, certainly related to economics, but I should mention as well that um, it derives directly as well from other sister disciplines, starting with mathematics, uh, statistics, um, accounting, uh, and uh, recently psych psychology, and I'll have something to say about that as I go. Now, how am I supposed to do this? Here we go. Um, I have a very low-tech sort of uh, presentation here, and it contains probably too many words and, indeed, a few equations, but I'm going to go very, very slowly over those equations. And this is what I want to do. <coughs> I want to basically set out what I think is sort of the, the scope of problems that are uh, um, studied by finance people and talk a little bit about the background that uh, has been provided by general economic analysis as addressed to those problems. And then I want to move on to what I think is uh, uh, very specific about finance and describe what I understand to be the emergence of modern finance. And in a word, I'm basically going to argue that the core of the way finance people think about problems is informed in a very deep sense by a variety of ideas that were introduced in, uh, around the concept of arbitrage. And I'm going to try to explain that and show how arbitrage follows through the thinking of many of the tools that are used in modern finance. And that what I'm going to describe in that section is a series of developments that gave rise to a, a between, I would say, the late 1950s and the late 1970s, or about 1980, that gave rise to a fairly uh, complete and coherent sort of account of how uh, finance uh, models fit together and how a finance view of the world sort of fits together. And I think that constitutes the core of thinking that is common to all finance people and is a bit still um, unfamiliar to many disciplines, even in economics. Uh, then I'm going to move on to uh, development subsequent to 1980, which uh, starts to address a variety of things that are swept aside in this very uh, slightly abstract, but uh, actually I'm going to argue quite practical, um, uh, complete markets view of the world with no arbitrage and so forth, and talk about how finance has taken on board uh, imperfections, because indeed in many real world market situations, the imperfections are too significant to be ignored. And once I get into that, I'm going to um, certainly not do justice to uh, the uh, wide range of developments that have taken place uh, in the last 25, 30 years. Um, and uh, I will just hint at some of the lines of thought 
But I'm going to conclude at the end there that despite this diversity of ideas that have been burgeoning up in the last uh, uh, decades, um, dealing with a variety of market imperfections, there is a common thrust to all of this, and I think there is a common goal. So now moving on to uh, the uh, problem of finance. Well, finance people think uh, about problems largely because of the problems that they are looking at. So what are the problems of finance? Well, historically, finance emerged from the thinking of economists who have studied the problem of allocating resources over time. Okay? So basically, the how to move resources over time. The classic questions are, how much should I save now and invest in productive projects in order to get some benefits in the future? Okay? The savings investment problem. Okay? A sub-problem of that or a related problem is among the alternative, uh, alternative available investment projects, which are the best to invest in? Now, a few minutes or a few moments of uh, contemplation of those general questions point out the fact that they hit up against the notion of uncertainty rather quickly because in order to make an informed response to those questions, you have to take a view about the future and the future is uncertain. So, for example, how much should be saved? Well, if you expect conditions in the business world or in your e income anyway to be uh, poor next period, then it's prudent on your part to save a bit more, okay? Um, whereas if it's very good conditions next period, maybe you shouldn't save quite so much, depending, okay? Similarly, which of the investment projects should I um, take on? Well, the one that has the highest return. Well, what's going to have the highest return in the future? Well, the one that's going to be in most demand. But which is the one that's going to be in most demand? Don't quite know. So we hit up against uncertainty right away. Now, we thrashed around as we, I mean, a century and a half ago, we, we as economists thrashed around trying to deal with these problems, but we were held back by the fact that we didn't have the basic tools of dealing with uncertainty. It was only when we started to get these basic tools that uh, a proper field of finance started to emerge. Now, what are the tools that I have in mind? Well, the main developments were uh, the introduction of expected utility theory by Von Neumann and Morgenstern, where we were able to somehow come up with a, 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 a representation about how people form attitudes towards risk uh, uh, of various sorts and how to take decisions under uncertainty. So that gave us one, one of the building blocks. The other that I would mention is the introduction of what is called the state contingent claims approach to uh, problems, which uh, simply starts with the observation that we can differentiate uh, things that we consume with respect to date, allocation over time, but also with respect to state of the world. Now, that's an abstraction that's very common within economics generally and so forth. Sounds a bit strange, perhaps, uh, to outsiders, but it's nothing other than trying to identify systematically the possibilities that can occur in the future um, and therefore I, you know, identify the elements of uncertainty. So once we identify these elements of uncertainty, we've defined the states of the world, and we can, in principle, distinguish um, the uh, consumption or production in these various states of the world. And that's how uncertainty gets, can be represented um, in a very uh, clear manner. Now, building on this, uh, there was a very active development starting in the late 40s, early 50s, um, that studied the problem of allocating resources 
over time, as I pointed out, but now over states of the world as well, two dimensions to the problem, okay? And this was the theory that was developed by Arrow, De Bruyne, and others that looked at how markets in general allow for a, a, uh, this allocation to take place. And they studied in particular general economic equilibrium under competitive conditions, okay? And established that in this kind of idealized setting, when you've got complete markets, and the emphasis here is on complete markets, um, uh, the uh, resulting outcome in the economy is going to be a good one. Good in the sense of Pareto, that is to say, nobody can made, be made better off without sacrificing somebody somewhere. Okay? Furthermore, any optimal allocation in the sense of Pareto, just in that sense, can be supported by a transfer of endowments or something like that. So the basic welfare theorems of economics carry over to the world of uncertainty. That was a basic and a very important insight. Now, that works under the assumption that you've got complete markets. Now, how many states of the world are there? How many possible outcomes next tomorrow are there? Well, if you think about them, even if you're willing to simplify quite a bit, they're quite a few. Say a thousand. And how many goods are there? Okay, well, a thousand. So in principle, and taken literally, the complete markets view of things says we need a million markets in, to allow transferring bananas in sunny weather with, you know, uh, cars in uh, rainy weather, okay? And all these pairwise trades should be able to take place. Now, that's in fact not the case. What people have found, and Arrow was uh, the one who made it clear uh, first, is that you don't need all of those markets. In fact, securities markets play a special role in transferring resources across states. If you've got a complete set of securities markets, one for each state of the world, so now just a thousand markets, not a million, okay, we can achieve effectively complete markets. We get all the full optimality results that we uh, might want uh, in this setting. So that were, those were some of the theoretical building blocks. Now, quickly, there was some application to finance, and the important ones, of course, were Tobin and Markowitz's introduction of uh, representation of expected utility in a mean variance setting that allowed us to solve the portfolio problem in general. How should I allocate uh, my wealth across a variety of investment projects? And it, uh, you did so on the basis of expected returns, but also the risk characteristics of those, uh, those securities. Risk characteristics reflected in the variance of the returns, but also the covariance of the return of one security with the other returns. So I have to take into account all of those, those things. When I do so optimally, I'll achieve optimally the blending of uh, the benefits of a high return with the benefits of diversification that help me to reduce the risk. So that's what came out of mean variance theory of Tobit and Markowitz. About the, a couple of years, well, about 10 years later, people thought about this and tried to simplify it a little bit. In particular, they were worried about the fact that, well, if you have a lot of securities, there are a lot of covariances you have to worry about. That makes it pretty complicated. In, in process of looking for simplification, people realized that, in fact, you can achieve all of this by reference to a common ref, uh, benchmark security, the market, Okay, and that was the development of the capital asset pricing model, which was developed by Sharp, Littner, Mosin, Trainer, several people in separate contributions, about 1960 or so. That became the first prominent example in finance of uh, a, a, a pricing rule 
that took into account the general market conditions. Okay? It's incidentally, I think, still one of the best and earliest examples of applied general equilibrium analysis. Okay? It it's, it's really was a, a, a leading thing in that manner. Now, all of that is economics. Economics, certainly, that has been useful for finance, but it's part of the intellectual baggage of the general economists. Now, what is special about finance? Now I'm moving on to the second uh, part of uh, the talk. What is this distinguishing characteristic of, uh, of modern finance? And here, as I already mentioned, I think the key is to understand the notion of our arbitrage. Okay? These were the key developments between about late 1950s and early 70s um, that uh, uh, introduced a, a particularly finance way of viewing things. Now, the period involved is given by the publication of the paper by Modigliani and Miller in 1958, a classic publication that's still uh, worth reading, um, and ending with the paper maybe, I, by Harrison and Krebs that set out uh, the uh, model of arbitrage and complete markets in, in, in quite uh, very general terms, completed with a couple more papers following that. So that gave about the period of the, the development. And, of course, now, arbitrage is not new to finance. It was an old notion knocking around in economics, and it underlies the, uh, the venerable law of one price in economics. Uh, however, I think what's distinctive is that starting with Modigliani, Modigliani and Miller, using the principle of Occam's razor, trying to strip away complexity to go to the, to the, the core of the idea, people saw that the idea of arbitrage can be used to strip away some of the complexity. Indeed, without any reference to preferences of individuals, technology, and all the complexity that goes into a structural economic model. Okay? So with minimal sort of assumptions, we can get something out of it. Okay? So now, how does it work? Well, first, what's an arbitrage? What do I mean by an arbitrage? An arbitrage is the purchase of one collection of goods and securities and the simultaneous sale of another collection of goods and securities, which produces a gain in at least one state of the world, okay, and no loss in any state of the world. So without paying anything in any state of the world, I can get something in at least one state of the world. Now, an arbitrage is nice. Okay? It's a private money machine. Okay? If I do an arbitrage, I can make, you know, as much money as I want without any loss, at least in some states of the world. So as a result, people who are self-interested can be relied upon to pursue arbitrage opportunities to a very great extent. But now, to do this, you have to do some trading. Okay? And to do some trading, somebody's got to be on the other side. So if you're making infinite profits, somebody is making infinite losses, at least in one state of the world. Okay. So we can rely on them as they see this flow of trades coming at them in huge volumes to say, what am I missing here? And look into it and say, oh, maybe the prices are not exactly right. And they will adjust the prices to avoid making those losses. Okay. So what's the force of arbitrage? It's not that we can all have money machines and, and so forth. It's rather that it imposes a discipline on pricing in the market and gives us solid rules for relative pricing. And that is the core idea that has been developed in a very major way in finance over the years. Okay, so now, in particular, Modigliani and Miller used this line of reasoning 
uh, for, uh, in a series of papers over about 10 years. Um, and basic proposition of Modigliani-Miller is that in the absence of market frictions, the value of debt, equity, and other liabilities of the firm must have a total value equal to the value of the assets of the firm. Okay? Now, Merton Miller was fond of sort of explaining this idea by way of an analogy to a pizza pie. Okay? The pizza pie is here. Now, you can c cut it up into slices any way which you want. Okay? But the, still, the total number of calories in that pie remain the same. Okay? Therefore, the sum of the calories in the individual pieces must be the same, come up to the same total. All right? So that's sort of a, a, a folksy way of sort of putting the point, and it maybe uh, suggests that it's a rather superficial idea, but indeed what has been shown is that, in fact, following through that simple observation into many practical situations leads to strong results and interesting results and avoids a fair amount of nonsense along the way. So in symbols, the uh, Modigliani-Miller theorem, and here's my first equation, this, one, this is a soft, this is a, a walking start, Sarah. Uh, the assets of the firm must be equal to the sum of debt and equity for the firm, for the firm that has just issued those two kinds of securities. Okay. All right, now that's simple enough, but there are a variety of implications that come out of this right away, and I don't have time to explore all of these. If you want to know them, take courses in finance. But, for example, just differentiate this uh, and then define return on equity as the change in the value of equity over a period of time divided by the initial value of the equity and so forth. Similarly, for the return on assets, ROA, what we see is that there's a relationship implied by Modigliani-Miller theorem of relating return on equity in excess of the rate of return on debt um, that can be expressed as proportional to the uh, excess return on assets um, where that proportion depends upon the ratio of assets to equity of the firm. Now, uh, that ratio of assets to equity of the firm is going to be a reflection of the degree of leverage that is used in the firm, that is to say, the composition of debt and equity in the firm. And a firm that uh, buys assets with a heavy reliance on debt is going to be a highly levered firm and is going to have a high ratio A over E. So what this is saying is that in thinking about pursuing higher returns for shareholders, firm insiders have basically two ways of going about it. They can try to build the return on uh, assets for the firm, okay, by doing smart investment projects, investment projects that high, have high uh, net present value, or they can simply try to lever it up. But in levering up, have to keep in mind that it may have spillover effects and may increase the riskiness of the firm. And it may mean that, for example, this return on debt may become risky, okay? And you have to take that into consideration, and then the analysis becomes a little bit more complicated. You can go on and on and on and try to develop the further insights in corporate finance of, of Matigliani Miller, but I won't do that. What I want to do is show how the simple sort of Matigliani Miller uh, uh, sort of view can be generalized, okay, to a world of state contingent claims, okay? So now we're in a more general world where I've got all these securities out there. We've got a security for each state in the world. So in particular, what I'm assuming, okay, is that I have uh, capital S states of the world, and I have for each of these states of the world one security being traded that will pay off one pound 
in that state of the world and zero in all other states. It's an elementary state claim. Okay? So now, this, uh, with, with these markets and using the logic of no arbitrage uh, uh, along Modigliani-Miller lines will give us a clear relationship between the value of any asset and the expected payoffs on that asset, expectations about the payoffs in the future. Okay? And this relationship is going to give me the fair market value. Okay? I'm going to clarify all of this a little bit more explicitly now. Okay, so suppose that we've got complete markets for securities and that these individual claims are traded in the market at a price pi s. Okay, so I, I've got one for each state and the, the price of that security is pi s. All right, so now we can use that to consider a variety of other securities, not just these elementary securities, and get rules for relative pricing by arguments of no arbitrage. Okay, let's start with the first one that pays off one pound in every state of the world. Okay? Now that's equivalent to buying a portfolio of one state claim for each state of the world. Okay? Because one of them is going to pay off, and only one of them is going to pay off, so I'll have one pound in every state of the world. It's also equivalent to putting a certain amount of money in the bank now at the risk-free rate and waiting a year or whatever it's going to be and get back the return. Okay? So it's equivalent to investing the amount of one upon one plus R at the risk-free rate, R. So as a result, the no arbitrage value for that uh, security is, uh, let's call it V, V0, I should say, is simply the cost of buying that portfolio of all the state claims. So that's the sum over all the states of the prices of the state claims. So that's one value. And that is also equal to what I have to put into the bank now at the risk-free rate in order to get uh, one in uh, the next period for sure. That's one upon one plus R. Okay, simple enough. Now, let's build up a little bit and introduce a new price, okay, a modified price. Uh, and, and let's do that by taking these state claim prices, pi S, and simply uh, multiply by one uh, plus R. So this gives me pi star, which is equal to pi times one plus R. All right, now, think about these a second. These must be positive, otherwise there's an arbitrage opportunity. Okay? That is to say, if they were zero or negative, I, would, I could get a payoff in one state of the world tomorrow for paying nothing today or even being paid for it. So that would be an arbitrage. So these prices must be, these modified prices must be positive. Furthermore, by construction, they add up to one. Okay? So the sum of the pi stars is equal to 1. So what have I just defined? I have defined a probability distribution over states of the world. A probability distribution just assigns a positive weight to any particular state of the world and sums up to 1. So my prices traded in the market, transformed in this way, represent a probability distribution over states of the world. Now, that's a key insight. Okay. So that probability distribution has a particular name in finance. We call it the risk-neutral probability distribution. And the reason for thinking about that uh, in that way or calling it that will be a little bit clearer in a second. 
All right, so now, building on that, let's apply this idea to a general security. The general security pays a known amount, Ys, in any particular state, S. Okay? Now, again, that security has a value that should be equivalent to the value of a portfolio consisting of Ys units of the state claims for state S. All right? So as a result, the value of this general security, the no arbitrage value of that general security, is simply the sum over S of pi S to Ys. Okay? This is the number of the state claims I would need to buy, and this is the price of each of them. So this is the amount I would have to pay for state claims in state S, and then that's sum over all the states, and that gives me the total amount I'd have to spend to get that security. So that's the no arbitrage value for a general security. But I've found I can write that differently using my definition of this pi star. That's equal to sum over S of pi star over 1 over 1 plus R. Uh, I can take the 1 over 1 plus R out of the sum because it's constant. And then what I'm left with is uh, the sum of pi star Y star summed over S. Okay. Now what is that? That's a weighted average of payoffs of the security in the various states where the weights are the probability weights from my risk-neutral probability distribution. So I simply can write that as 1 over 1 plus R times expected value of my security, or expected payoff of my uh, security, where expectation, E star, is taken with respect to the risk-neutral probability distribution. Okay? All right, so I can price anything. Once I know the risk-neutral probability distribution, I can price anything by calculating its expected value or its expected payoff in the future, and discounting back at the risk-free rate. Not some funny rate, just the risk-free rate. Okay? It becomes very simple once I have that probability distribution. All right? Extremely powerful. I can price anything now. Um, so now, I want to stress that if the underlying pies were market prices for elementary securities, okay, then this V that I've calculated in this way is the fair market value of the security. If its price differs in the market, I can make an economic arbitrage profit. Okay? It's the fair market value. All right? So now, that should be distinguished from uh, the kind of values that are calculated by actuaries that are based on historical or statistical probabilities that they associate with different outcomes in the future. An actuarial value would be based on some statistical distribution, let's call the statistical distribution over my states as pi AS, A for actuaries, and um, the, our actuarial value of this general security now is going to be, take the expected value of uh, the payoffs using my statistical distribution and discount it back at the risk-free rate. Or 1 over 1 plus R, expected value of YS, where expectation here doesn't have a star, meaning that is taken with respect to the statistical distribution or the historical distribution. Now, uh, this difference between the actuarial value and the market value is going to reflect a discount that is imposed by the market for bearing the risks associated with the security. It reflects risk aversion, okay, implicitly in, the, in these differences between the pies, pi, the, the pi stars or the pies, and the pi A's. Um, now, it, I note in passing that all this can be related to another way of representing risk, 
which is in terms of a risk-adjusted rate of return that's required on a security, that's given by this equation, that the market value of the security is equal to the expected payoff of the security, expected under the statistical distribution, discounted back at some risk-adjusted rate. And comparing this equation with the equation I had on the previous page, that gives me a definition of R star. So now, this is a powerful tool, and it can be developed in a lot of different guises. One of the most fruitful lines of development was the development done by Black and Scholes. It gave rise to the famous Black-Scholes formula that most of you have at least heard of a little bit. So how does Black and Scholes relate to all of this? Well, it's a generalized case of this in some sense, generalized to continuous states. So now Black and Scholes studied the problem that was first studied, at least to my knowledge, by Louis Bachelier back in 1900 in his doctoral thesis, and subsequently by others, who looked at the valuation of an option. An option is a kind of security that gives you the right to buy something in the future at a price that's determined today, and it's not an obligation to buy that. So now Louis Bachelier and others subsequently found the fair actuarial value of such a call option. And you can write the solution that they found using my formula for actuarial valuation in this special case. It's discounted at the risk-free rate, and then I calculate the expected payoff of this call option, and the payoff of a call option at maturity is going to be the maximum of the underlying, here this will be the stock price, let's say, at maturity, minus the exercise price, or zero. Because you're only going to exercise if exercising it is going to give you a positive profit, and you won't otherwise. So that's first here implicitly applying one notion of no arbitrage. And then discounting it back gives me the actuarial value. Now the problem with this is that it still doesn't tell me what's fair value in the market, because just buying it like that seems to involve some sort of risk. And that would be reflected in some sort of risk-taking. Furthermore, in order to calculate this, I need to take some sort of view on the future course of the stock market, which is hard to know something about. Okay, so now, an example of exercises along this line were those done by Paul Samuelson in the 60s, where he calculated actuarial value, trying to use the tools that he was borrowing from physics from Norbert Wiener, where he was assuming that the underlying stock price would follow this kind of stochastic process, which is known as geometric Brownian motion. Now just to explain, this is a small change of the stock price over a short period of time. This is the short period of time. This is a random variable normally distributed over that short period of time called the Brownian motion. And what we're saying is that these are the parameters. This is the volatility of the stock price, and this is the drift of the stock price. And what Samuelson came up with was a formula of this type that was essentially an integral formula using this underlying distribution. And the problem was that he had to know the mu. That is to say, he had to be able to forecast where the stock market was going. And furthermore, it gave you an actuarial value. So he was a bit stuck. Now building on this, Black and Scholes found that they could construct a dynamic sequence of portfolios. And the way they got to that was actually by a hint from Robert Merton, who was Paul Samuelson's doctoral student, who was trying to solve this problem and couldn't quite get there. But he sort of saw the 
made a basic important insight. And that insight was that if you just look at the movement of the portfolio over a short period of time, it's possible to construct a portfolio that is hedged against risks of the stock price movement over a very short period of time. Using that notion, they were able to build up a formula for constructing a sequence of no arbitrage portfolios involving the call option plus the underlying stock and the risk rebate. And each of those portfolios would be a no arbitrage portfolio. They'd be riskless. Therefore, in order to avoid arbitrage, the value of those portfolios would need to grow at the risk rebate over a short period of time. Well, writing that down explicitly gave rise to how the prices of all of these things need to change over time in step. It gave rise to a differential equation, a partial differential equation of a known type, the heat equation, that they were able to solve. And they came up with the solution, which can be written in this way. And it's just a special case of the formula that I had before. It's the market value of the call option is the present discounted value of the expected payoff of that call option, where you take expectation with respect to the risk neutral measure. And in the case of geometric Brownian motions, what they showed was that the risk neutral measure can be derived from this other geometric Brownian motion as this. It's the very same distribution except for one difference. Instead of the drift of the stock market, it's just the known risk free rate. We eliminated one very important, hard to know, parameter. So I stress that the solution that which we can write in this way as a function of the current stock price, the strike price, the current interest rate, the date of the options maturity and the volatility does not involve predicting the stock market. Furthermore, this is the fair market value of the call option. And it's all derived by no arbitrage reasoning. Very powerful. So we've done this in states of the world. And to generalize a bit further, we can extend Black-Scholes pricing to still wider range of kinds of things, not just call options, which sounds a bit special. So the approach can be generalized to any security following where the underlying risk is following a geometric Brownian motion. So assume that I have a general security, again, that's going to pay off an amount Y, which will depend upon the state of the world here, the underlying stock price, let's say, at some maturity date cap T in the future. Then in the absence of arbitrage today, its value is equal to what I'm calling V star now, discounted value at the risk free rate of expectation taken under the risk neutral probability measure of whatever that payoff is. Again, this expectation is taken under the very same probability measure that I use for Black-Scholes pricing. It was that equation two I had up, that diffusion, where the drift term is just R, the risk free rate. So given that, I can price anything that is driven by that underlying geometric Brownian motion. That is the unique risk neutral measure for these valuation purposes. Furthermore, now it may seem that, okay, this is still a little bit abstract because I don't have prices for all these securities and so forth. You may then look at that problem and try to see whether we can infer something about this risk neutral distribution from prices that we see traded in the market. There were a variety of results that came in the 80s, 70s, and 80s 
so-called spanning results, about ways you can represent things equivalent to a portfolio of plans for all of the states of the world. And you get in a relation of the following sort, let the probability distribution among these future states of the world be f of s. That density function can be written in the following way. Once you know my Black-Scholes formula, you can write that as a proportional gamma, that's a negative constant that is just chosen to get the scale right, times the partial derivative of my function with respect to its second argument, the strike price, evaluated at the state of the nature s that I'm interested in. So if I know my Black-Scholes formula, differentiate it with respect to the second argument, scale it so that my probability density function integrates to 1, so that probability is sum to 1. That gives me the probability, that gives me the risk-neutral probability distribution. So long as I've got a dealer out there that is going to tell me the call option price today for any exercise price I might care to imagine, then I have a complete set of prices that allows me to infer the risk-neutral probability measure. So as a result, we can do valuation in the following sort of way. Now, what I stress is the risk-neutral probability measure of density that I just derived in this way, this f of s, is different from some actual statistical density by an amount that's going to reflect a market price of risk-bearing. Now, you might ask, well, okay, suppose I go out and do a lot of measurements out of history and so forth and come up with some sort of estimate of that historical valuation or probability measure. How would the two differ? The answer is given by an object called the pricing kernel in finance. And that pricing kernel is a weight that is assigned to states of the world, and it is defined implicitly by the following relation. Now, here's my value of a general security, which now can be written using this risk-neutral probability density that I've just derived as the sum of, take the payoff times the probability weight and sum them up. Here I'm integrating over states of the world because I've got continuous states. So that was the value of my general security. I can write that also as the discounted value of the integral of the pricing kernel times the payoff times the statistical density function. So what am I doing? I'm shaping, I'm weighting my statistical density function either higher or lower by an amount reflected in the pricing kernel. Now, how does that pricing kernel behave and what does it have to do with risk-bearing? Now, further studies looking at how this behaves in equilibrium can show that the pricing kernel is equal to this object. Now, what is this? I'm going back now to sort of the economics of pricing. I'm going back to attitudes towards risk. And I imagine that I'm in a von Neumann-Morgenstern type of world where individuals have calculated expected utilities where utilities are given by this von Neumann-Morgenstern utility function, U. That depends upon here, a single argument, consumption in the future. So I have consumption in the future. And U prime is the margin utility of consumption. When I get an amount of consumption, CT, which would occur in state S. And when I take the ratio of that to the margin utility of consumption today, I get what 
economists know as the marginal rate of substitution between consumption now and consumption at some date in the future, some date, state in the future. Okay? So now, when I'm risk-averse, this utility function is concave. That means its second derivative is negative. That means that if CT is very high relative to other dates or other times of consumption, the marginal utility of that consumption is going to be low. As a result, my pricing kernel is going to bias the probability weight down. I'm not going to put too much weight on that period. If, in contrast, CT, cap T, of this given state S is, is going to be low because it's a poor state, we're all poor, poor harvest, depression, whatever, then margin utility is going to be high by risk aversion. As a result, the pricing kernel is going to put high weight on that state, and it's going to sort of reshape probabilities in that way in order to give me the um, um, risk-neutral probability distribution. So now, finally, I note the theory was completed when people established, and this is Harrison and Krebs, uh, that under a variety of settings, more general than my geometric Brownian notion, very general indeed, that it, so long as the system of the markets is complete, or effectively complete, the risk-neutral probability density, and therefore the pricing kernel, is unique. There's a single one. There's a single one. If you find it once, you don't have to look a second time. You've got it. And you can price anything. Now, that is a very, very powerful set of theories that hang together in a very particular sort of way. Now, it seems a bit abstract, okay? But I argue that it's not abstract, too abstract to be used. Indeed, it's being used all the time. What, the way I would put it is that Keynes' dictum that the practical business people of today uh, is the hostage of some defunct academic of the very, fairly recent past. Never been truer than in financial markets of today. Big banks are looking for consistent pricing of their uh, various securities that they're trading by finding a pricing kernel for the relevant segments of a market and using a single pricing kernel to price all the related claims so that nobody's going to be able to arbitrage them because they're giving one price one place that implies a different pricing kernel and another, another price and so forth. Otherwise, they're going to get fleeced. So they're looking for consistency of pricing by using the tools that I've just described. These pricing models in, as well are being used for hedging and risk management, for the calculation of value at risk, or simulating all kinds of properties of the distribution, where you simulate the probability distributions like these geometric Brownian motions or others, and get uh, various kinds of uh, statistics to tell you something about capital standards and all the rest of it. And finally, the whole business of securitization, structured finance, and all the other aspects of the slicing and dicing of securities that have been you know, in the news daily for the last 12 months or the last seven months uh, is nothing other than elaborate exercises in the application of complete markets theory. So now, that describes what I think is the core of thinking that is shared by finance economists uh, at the LSE pretty much everywhere else. Uh, this theory was essentially complete in the early 1980s. Since then, uh, academics have not been idle. What they've been doing is, okay, going to these results and seeing what holds, what doesn't hold, once we start to take on board some of the real-world frictions that seem too big to be ignored, because here I've ignored some. 
And the answer is, unfortunately, once you do that, things get complicated, and some of the theory loses the high degree of precision that I was laying out just now. And just to get a sense of that, thinking about transaction costs, I mean, part of the frictions of the world is that unlike the theory that I was just laying out, which assumes that you can buy and sell a security at the same price, in reality, buying and selling an asset typically involves a difference in prices, a spread between the selling price and the buying price. So, for example, imagine a currency situation. If in a perfect market, suppose that the U.S.-U.K. exchange – I hope I got these numbers right. The U.S.-U.K. exchange rate is $2 per pound, and the U.S.-E.U. exchange rate is $1.50 per euro. Then to prevent arbitrage, the E.U.-U.K. exchange rate must be 1.33 euros per pound. So that's in the perfect world. Now, suppose we put in a bid-ask spread of about 1% on the U.K.-U.S. exchange rate and another slightly over a percent on the dollar-E.U. exchange rate, and then look for the arbitrage bounds that I'm going to get out of this. The answer is I get about a 2.5% arbitrage bound that looks like this. Why? Because, well, if I try to do the arbitrage, it's going to involve going from dollars to euros to pounds, going three ways like that. Each time I'm going to be on the wrong side of the market. I'm going to be hit by a transaction cost. And the more I do, the more the transaction costs are going to add up, the wider the bounds are going to get, and so forth. Now, that lack of precision carries over in general. In general, what we see, and you can show, is that once you have a range of prices, once we have incomplete markets or once we have some sort of imperfection of this sort, then actually there is a multiplicity of pricing kernels or risk-neutral distributions that are consistent with no arbitrage. So we lose a precision that we had a single risk-neutral measure that we could deal with. How do people try to resolve that indeterminacy? Well, I would distinguish what financial economists tend to do, which is appeal to notions of economic equilibrium and look at this pricing kernel, this marginal rate of substitution, and think about the economics behind things that drive marginal rates of substitution and maybe elaborate a full-blown general equilibrium model with preferences and technology and all the rest of it, or perhaps take a more sort of macro form approach that says, well, here's a plausible function and condition it on some covariance like that. So that's what we do in financial economics. Mathematicians, on the other hand, have looked at, for example, a set of actions that may lead to a plausible property for a pricing kernel, for example, minimal entropy and other things like that. It's a different perspective, not an equilibrium sort of perspective. I think I'm not going to have time to go very much into what corporate finance has been doing. Basically, what they've been doing is living in a non-Modigliani-Miller world where frictions matter, where how you structure the finances of the firm can create value for the holders or the investors involved in this. And they have built on agency theory coming from Jensen and Meckling. They've built it up into a variety of second-breast rules like pecking order rules for financial structure, taking as exogenously given the securities that are traded out there, 
More recently, starting in the 90s, we started looking at what happens when the securities that are out there actually are chosen endogenously, and that gave rise to the whole school of security design that has been growing like mad. This is extremely rich in theory and perhaps a bit poor in robust empirical implications. More recently, corporate finance has been focusing on models that have returned to the simple sort of frictions that Modigliani and Miller are worried about and so forth, but looking at them in an intertemporal sort of world, and they've been looking at so-called dynamic trade-off models, okay, which modify to a significant extent the kinds of predictions that come out of these models. Finally, in asset markets, most of the work has been an offshoot of the so-called explorations of the efficient markets hypothesis, which I'll summarize with reference to this equation. It simply says that if I ask, okay, Vt plus 1 is the value of my asset tomorrow. Et is the expectation of that asset, expectation today. So what's the expected value of that asset tomorrow? Well, that's the expectation of, well, my asset tomorrow is going to be the expected value of the payoff of that security. I'm ignoring discount retail. Right? But by the law of iterated expectations, that's just the expected value today of the payoff of that security. So what that says is that the expected value of the security's value tomorrow is just its current price today. All right? This is the famous Martingale result. It says that the value of the security today is our best forecast of the value of the security tomorrow. Okay? Or it says that changes in the stock prices or asset prices should follow a random walk or something like that. I'm simplifying enormously. Well, since then, finance on the asset market side has been exploring whether or not this equation, this kind of property of efficient markets has held true. And the early tests found that it was pretty well borne out. But then looking further, we found that there were anomalies, so-called anomalies, that, are, that violate this property. And people have been trying to chase this down. And they have found, by and large, explanations of a variety of sorts. But... Each time we find a wave of, of anomalies, we find another generation of explanations. We then look at the data some more, and we find more anomalies, and we're finding still more elaborate explanations. And more recently, the explanations have gone to behavioral type of explanations, or they have gone to more looking at institutional uh, 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 frictions, such as agency objectives being more complicated than those, uh, or, or agent objectives being more complicated than those uh, uh, contemplated, or compl complications coming from the institutional environment. So, for example, the fact that a lot of investment decisions are not made by investors for themselves, but will be being made by their agents on behalf of them, where the interests of the agents may be different than uh, those of the investors. And finance has been busy trying to follow through on the implications of this kind of uh, way of allocating funds. So now, um, if I, I didn't give you much chance to see these uh, uh, most recent developments, if I had gone further, uh, unfortunately, I wouldn't have been able to show you a single unitary theory of, uh, of the theory of market imperfections, because there is none. Okay. But I would argue, nevertheless, that there's still a... Uh, underlying implicit coherency to the work of uh, what financial economists are trying to do in this area. And that is a sort of a shared goal of trying to establish a tight and consistent theory on par with the complete markets theory that I described in greater length, uh, but which is also consistent with these kinds of empirical observations that have been coming to light. And that's the way we're making progress. Now, in doing so, I would say that 
I would emphasize that we're staying within the scope of financial economics in the sense that the, the paradigm of the self-interested agent maximizing some sort of objective function subject to some sort of constraints given by institutional environment is still where we're at because that paradigm has proved so rich and so malleable okay, that it seems to be give us both coherence and flexibility in trying to approach these kinds of problems. And I would simply close in saying that there's not one financial economist to, uh, of my acquaintance who would pretend to be offering a revolutionary sort of view of finance that could possibly sweep that paradigm away. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.